I mentioned to you, yesterday I had an interesting opportunity. There was a television film crew from New York that uh, flew into Los Angeles uh, for the purpose of, of interviewing me and uh, finding out about Grace Community Church. And it was interesting. They, uh, they had read in the Christian Science Monitor, the front page of the Christian Science Monitors had an article about the fact that uh, the lawsuit which Grace Community Church has won twice was now back in court again. The people who are suing the church have taken it to the next level of court. And they wanted to know about Grace Community Church. It was really interesting. We sat down and had all this film crew in there. The first question he asked me was, uh, he said, I, I would like to know what is the main message of your church? And I just kind of smiled. I said, you want to know the main message of our church? And I just proceeded to take him completely through the gospel. And he was so interested. We were, it was as if we were having a conversation and uh, nobody was around. And uh, he said, you mean to tell me that, that I need to have a personal relationship with God? And I said, that's right. I said, and you can have a personal, intimate relationship with the living God through faith in Jesus Christ. He said, well, is that what it means to be born again? Now, this is the TV interviewer who is interviewing me. See? He said, is that what it means to be born again? I said, that's what it means to be born again. He said, in other words, it isn't a religious ritual and all of that. You're telling me it's a real relationship. I said, that's right. Boy, he said, that's what I need. So we went on talking for about an hour. So you can pray for him. His name is Raphael. And he, uh, he is an interviewer for a syndicated television program that comes out of New York. And when the, I don't know what will end up on the air. I can promise you that won't end up on the air. But um, I've learned long ago when you're interviewing someone, don't talk to a television audience. Talk to When they're interviewing you, talk to them. And try to get a message across to them. And it was a really wonderful opportunity to witness for Christ. Then he wanted to know why all the people came to Grace Church. And so I told him because their lives have all been changed. They've all entered into that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And he said, well, why are all these families here and all these kids? The school was out. And I said, because families are falling apart. And he said, boy, that is really true. What are we going to do about that? And uh, so I went on to explain how that Christ could change families. It was terrific. It was a fantastic opportunity to witness. And... Uh, I don't know what will end up on the air, but, uh, you know, you never know when the Lord's going to give you an opportunity. Because, you know, I was kind of in a mode, well, here comes another guy to attack Grace Church. And the Lord was really saying, here's an opportunity to present the gospel to this guy. And I, I was so grateful for that opportunity. Well, we're in the middle of a series on the master's morality. And I'd like you to take your Bible, if you will, this morning and, and look at two verses that are very familiar, but that give us a, a focal point for this whole matter of, of morality in our lives. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. The beginning of the year, we did a series on the subject of worship. And we talked about the fact that we as believers are called to worship. That the primary responsibility that we have as Christians is to give to God. Everything we have, everything we are is a supreme act of worship. And we're going to go back to that theme a little bit because in the middle of discussing morality, there is an issue at the core of everything that you have to understand. There is one act of worship that is the door to all blessing. There is one act of worship that is crucial to every other dimension of Christian life. 
And that is what is expressed here in verses 1 and 2. And this definitely is a passage that relates to an act of worship. And you'll see it as you recall to mind these familiar words. Verse 1. I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, the central phrase or the central thought in this whole deal is living sacrifice. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. This is to say that your life is to be given to God as an offering. The, the imagery here is the imagery of an Old Testament priest presenting a sacrifice on the altar before God. You remember the Old Testament sacrificial system required that God's people bring offerings, place them on the altar as tokens of worship. And that's exactly what you have here. You have worship terminology. The, the very phrase living sacrifice is a worship word or a worship concept. Present, the verb present, has connotations of the priest presenting the offering to God. So the focal point of this is that we as spiritual priests, and we are spiritual priests according to what Peter says, are offering up to God ourselves as a living sacrifice. That's, that's the concept. Now let me talk a little bit about what a living sacrifice is, alright? In the Old Testament, obviously, the animals that were offered were dead sacrifices. They were placed on the altar, they were killed, it was a dead sacrifice. In contrast to that, what God wants is a living sacrifice. Uh, that is to say this, a dead sacrifice offered itself once and that was the end. A living sacrifice is in the process of continually offering itself to God. Let me put it in another perspective. If you go back to the story of Genesis 22, which is the story of Abraham and Isaac, you remember that God said to Abraham, go up on Mount Moriah and offer your son as a sacrifice. Okay? You remember the story. Now, you have to understand what was behind that. Abraham had reached the age of 100 before he had that son. Sarah had reached the age of 90 plus. All their lives they had been barren. They had no children. You remember God said, I'm going to give you a son. I'm not only going to give you a son, Genesis 12. I'm going to give you a whole nation of people. They will number like the sands of the sea and the stars of the heaven. I'm going to give you a, a tremendous multitude that's going to come out of your loins. And Abraham's response is, how's that going to happen when I've never had any? Then God touched the body of Abraham and Sarah and uh, gave them Isaac. Uh, Abraham tried to help God out by having an illegitimate son with Hagar, Ishmael, but that was outside of God's covenant promise. Then God gave Abraham Isaac. Now, in that child was not only a son, which every Jewish father desperately wanted to pass on his name and pass on his progeny and to whom he could give his inheritance, not only was there a son, but a beloved son. In Genesis 22, it says that Isaac was his beloved son. And several times he refers to him as his beloved son. So there was not only a son, but there was a tremendous loving companion, a relationship between that father and that son. More than that, in Isaac was all the promise of God. So that God's character was at stake in Isaac. If God promised a nation and never gave one child, then how could God keep his promise? And if God didn't keep his promise, God isn't faithful. And Abraham has been worshiping a God who's not faithful. So the whole of Abraham's theology was wrapped up in that son. The whole of God's promise, all of Abraham's hope was in that son. 
Now, when God comes to Abraham and says, kill that son, that literally strikes a blow at every dimension of Abraham's life. It strikes him at the point where this is his son, which is very important to him. It strikes him at the point where this is his beloved son, and he's going to have to kill somebody that he deeply and profoundly loves. It strikes him at the point of his hope for a future people. It strikes him at the point of his theology, because if his son is dead, then how can God fulfill his promise? And so this is a, this is a monumental act on the part of Abraham. Now look at it this way. Isaac... Had he been slain, and you remember God spared the son, but had Isaac been slain, he would have been a dead sacrifice, right? But if Isaac had been slain, while he would have been a dead sacrifice, Abraham would have been making a living sacrifice. In what sense do I mean that? In this sense, that if Isaac had been slain on that altar, Abraham would have literally sacrificed his son, his beloved son, his heir, his promises, his covenant, his hope, everything. In other words, when Isaac gave his life, that would have been a dead sacrifice. When Abraham gave up all of his dreams and all of his visions and all of his hopes and all of his love, that would have been a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice, then, is the sacrifice of everything I hold dear, okay? To be a living sacrifice is to give up everything that I hold dear and precious and valuable. And that's what God is asking for here. That we be a living sacrifice, willing to give up everything that is precious, everything that is dear, everything that is valuable, if God asks. If God asks. Now, what does that involve? All right, let's ask what that involves. And, and I just want to give this to you in... Some very, I think, simple ways to grasp because I believe it's a very straightforward and simple passage. God wants you to be a living sacrifice in three areas, okay? Three areas. The soul, the body, and the mind. And they overlap, and I'm not trying to draw clear lines of distinction between them as if the soul and the body had no interchange of, of reality or as if the body and the mind had no interchange of reality or if the soul and mind had none. In other words, they're not necessarily hard and fast divisions within the nature of man or woman, but they are ways to perceive what God wants. First of all, the soul must be given to God. I see that in the beginning of verse 1. Look at it. He says, I urge you or beseech you, as the author says, therefore, brethren, follow this, by the mercies of God to present a living sacrifice. Now, this implies something, and I want you to grasp. I beseech you, I beg you, by the mercies of God. And we say, what does that mean? What are the mercies of God? Notice the word therefore. What's the word therefore, therefore? What does it do? It transitions from what has just been said, right? It transitions out of what has just been said. So go back into chapter 11, for example, verse 32. And you get a summary in verse 32 of the whole epistle up to this point. From Romans 1, right on through, you get a summary right here. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. And then a closing benediction. 
verses 33 to 36. But verse 32 is the summary statement of chapters 1 to 11. And what are the two things? The first one, God has shut up all in disobedience. What does that mean? That God painted a picture that man was a what? Sinner. And that he is literally a prisoner shut up, confined by his own sin. The whole purpose of Romans 1 through 3, really, is to show man, 3 verse 20, bound in sin. From 3.21 to the end of chapter 11, he goes to the second part of that verse, that he might show mercy to all. So you can divide all 11 chapters up into two parts, 1, 1 to 3.20, basically, there's an introduction there at the beginning, but certainly 1.18 to 3.20 is to show that men are all locked up in disobedience. They're all sinful. There's none righteous, no, not one. By the deeds of the law will no flesh be justified. All men are captive to sin. The second half from 321 to the end of chapter 11 shows how God gives mercy to all. Okay, now when we come to verse 1, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, we know what that means. Those mercies are all the things related to salvation. That's what those mercies are. And what that implies, and it is implicit rather than explicit, is that the first thing you are required to give to God is your soul in salvation. That's what's implied there. It starts with the redeemed soul, that, that real you, that inner person being given to God by faith to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. And that's where it starts. You can't give your body to God. You can't give your mind to God until you've given your what? Your soul to God. That's where it has to start. Your soul is transformed first. And that's implied in that statement, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. In other words, because of what you have received of the mercy of God for your eternal soul, I beg you to go the next step. That's the idea. Now, what are those mercies of God? What, what are the mercies, plural, that God has given to us in salvation? Tremendous thoughts. And I, I just ran back through Romans and jotted them down. If you start at the chapter that we said that this starts in, chapter 3, verse 21 and following, you'll find that God has given us divine love. God has given us divine grace. God has given us the Holy Spirit. God has given us divine peace, divine comfort, divine power. He has given us hope. He has given us patience. He has given us kindness. He has given us the hope of glory. He has given us honor and righteousness and forgiveness and reconciliation and justification and eternal security and eternal life and freedom and resurrection and sonship and intercession and just goes on and on. God has given us all of that, all of that, and all of that can be cataloged under one title, the mercies of God, the mercies of God. And that's where, young people, that's where life starts. Before you can live a pure life, before you can abide by God's moral standards, you have to give your life to God. I was speaking at Cal State Northridge one day in a philosophy class. There's a philosophy professor there by the name of Rabbi Kramer. He's a former rabbi who teaches philosophy. And every once in a while, he likes to have a fundamentalist come and kind of get devoured by the philosophy class. 
And uh, he asked me to come, and I did. And he asked me to speak on Jesus' standard for sexual morality. Now, you can imagine going into a CSUN philosophy class and trying to get people to buy into Jesus' standard for sexual morality. So I had to figure out how I could do this in a way that I wouldn't get thrown out, tarred and feathered before I even got started. So I started the class by saying, of course, I said it was good to be there and I was thankful for the opportunity. And then I started out by saying, I just want you to know that I understand that none of you are going to buy into this at all. I just want you to know that I really realize that none of you are going to be at all interested in, in the morality standards of Jesus Christ at all. So I assume that they will not appeal to you. That you will not desire to abide by them. I just want you to understand that I know that you will not be interested in the standards of Jesus Christ. Secondly, I said, even if you were interested, you have absolutely no ability to live by these standards. <laughs> well, see, what you want to do? Typical college. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What, you, what makes you think that? See, now you got them where you want them. See? <laughs> So that's what I got. One guy says, well, what do you mean we won't be able to? We'll make that choice. I said, well, good. And another student said, well, why won't we? Why can't we? Why is it that we won't be able to? Why, why won't we accept these? And why is it that we won't be able to live by these standards? I'll tell you why. I said, because your soul has never been transformed and given first the love of Christ and secondly, the capacity to obey his word. And one kid said, well, how do, how do you get your soul transformed? And I said, I'm glad you asked. And the rabbi says, no, no, I think we're getting off the subject. And one of the students said, no, no, we're not. This is the, let him speak. So I did. And uh, we had some students there afterwards ready to, to, to witness the kids. And we had a little time in the hall. It was really neat. But I basically went on to present to them the idea that if your soul isn't transformed, you couldn't, you couldn't keep these standards anyway. No way. First, you wouldn't want to. And secondly, if you wanted to, you wouldn't have the capacity to do it. Before you can present your body to God, you've got to present your soul to Him. And it has to be transformed so that you hunger and thirst after what? After righteousness. So that you love purity. So that there's a desire in your heart for what is right and true and good and godly. And that's the transformed soul. The strongest motive for a dedicated life is a transformed soul. It, it, when you look at what God has done for you and how he's changed your soul, that's going to call out to you that you'll want him to change your body and your mind and everything else. It's the soul, the inner self. Where it all starts. In fact, it is your soul having been transformed that then presents your body and your mind. You see, when your inner man is transformed, it then presents your body and presents your mind to God. The psalmist said in Psalm 116, 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? And that's the way a redeemed soul feels. And so let me put it on the bottom line, young people. If you have no desire to live by God's moral standard, then you ought to question whether your soul has ever been transformed. And you're dealing with an issue of salvation. 
On the other hand, if you have a great desire to give your body and your mind to the Lord and live according to the way that God wants you to live, but you're having failure doing it, that's not an issue of salvation. Where, you, where you're struggling is just at points two and three, which we'll get to. But if the desire isn't there, then I would venture to say you need to take a good hard look at whether your soul's been transformed. Or if you are utterly incapable and you find yourself totally incapable of living by God's standard, it may be that your soul has never been transformed at all. So we start with the soul. The soul becomes the recipient of all the mercies of God and salvation. And as a result of that, we go to step number two. And what's that? Well, step number two is the body must be given to God. Notice verse one again. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is your act of worship. Now you want to present your bodies. That's, again, a temple term. The word present It's a technical term for presenting a Levitical offering. You literally offer your body to God. Now you say, why the body? Let me tell you, when we say body here, we're not just talking about your flesh and bones. We're talking about your unredeemed humanness, the, the earthly part of you, the fleshly part of you. The body does engulf more than just what is physical. It's the impulses of your body as well. Now the reason you have to present your body, now get this thought. The reason you have to present your body is, are you ready for this? Your body has not been redeemed. You understand that? Your body has not been redeemed. You say, when will my body be redeemed? You tell me. When will it be redeemed? At the second coming of Christ. When your body is glorified. Romans 8 says we are waiting for the redemption of our body. We have experienced the redemption of our soul. We are waiting for the redemption of our body. So the soul that is redeemed longs to put the body on the altar, but the body keeps crawling off. That's the problem. The redeemed soul hungers for righteousness, but the body is kind of mixed up. It's receiving all kinds of impulses. That's why in Romans 6, the Apostle Paul talks about the fact that we have to, we have to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. You remember that statement in Romans 6? Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. And then he says in verse 13, that's verse 12. Neither yield ye your bodily parts as instruments of unrighteousness. It's your body that's the problem. It's the physical impulses. In Romans 7, he says this. That is, in me, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Sin that is in me, where is it, Paul? In my flesh. So what you are then is you are a, a newly created soul, a newly created inner person existing in an unredeemed body. And therein lies spiritual conflict. Now stay with me on this thought. Spiritual conflict comes because you are a new creation, a redeemed soul in an unredeemed flesh. That's the point of your conflict. And so you have to take initiative to get your body up there on the altar. To present your body as a living sacrifice. Paul says that's not easy to do. You know what he said in 1 Corinthians 9? He said, I beat my body into submission. Isn't that interesting? I mean, the body will run amok, won't it? He says, I beat my body into submission. Lest in preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Because I haven't controlled my body. There are a lot of people in ministry, they don't, they don't control the body and they're disqualified. 
So I am an inner person made new and an outer person not yet made new. I don't know about you, but it'll be a wonderful thing to think about the fact that someday we're going to be made new in and out. And that's why Paul says that we, we wait, we hope for the redemption of the body. That's why he says the whole creation groans and travails, waiting for the glorious manifestation of the sons of God in Romans chapter 8. Now notice please what it says. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Hagias is the word holy. It's a Greek word, but in the Greek language it had no sense of purity in it because the Greeks had no sense of purity. You know what religion was in a Greek culture? Go to a temple and have sex with a prostitute. That was worship to the Greeks. Go to the temple and get drunk. Go to the temple and gorge yourself in gluttony and then go vomit in a pit in the floor and go back and gorge yourself some more. That's how Greeks worshipped. So when they used the word holy in Greek, it had no sense of purity to it, no sense of, of holiness. It only had the idea of being separate, set apart from something. Christianity sanctified the word hagias and gave to it the meaning of purity and holiness, free from sin, undefiled, pure. So what is it that God wants? He wants us to present our body. And what, what form is that body to come in? It's to be set apart unto Him. It's to be holy. He doesn't want an unholy one. You can't give to God. You can't offer yourself to God apart from being holy. What was the standard in the Old Testament when you brought a lamb? It had to be a lamb that was what? Spotless and what? Without blemish. In Malachi chapter 1 verse 6... He says, uh, you've despised my name. And they said, how did we despise your name? God says, you've despised my name. He said, how? He said, you present defiled food on my altar. You bring me defiled food. You bring me your rotten food. You wouldn't eat it anyway. You're giving me the worst of your stuff. And then verse 8, you, you present the blind for sacrifice. You bring me a blind lamb that's no good to you anyway because it can't find the food. And it's not going to be fat and, and you won't want it. You bring me the lame and the sick animals. I don't want that. Bring me the pure and the spotless and the blameless and the best that you have. Bring me your first fruits and the prime lambs you have. And that's exactly what you have in this picture here. God says, I don't want, this, I don't want the dirty end of the stick of your life. Give me your, your body pure. Don't offer me. Don't say, here, God, I want to serve you. Here's my body with all its sin and all its defilement and all its evil. I don't want that. That's not what I want. You can't put that on my altar. So first you present your soul and then you present your body. You present your soul as sinful as it is. In one sense, you present your body pure, applying the means of grace to cleanse your own heart. And then it says, acceptable to God. And the only kind of sacrifice acceptable to God was a pure sacrifice, right? The best. That's the high standard. And that is your spiritual service of worship. The word spiritual is logikos. We get logic from it. Reasonable, intelligent, obvious. In other words, it's only obvious that God accepts pure sacrifices. So before you go offering your body to the Lord, make sure you've confessed your sin and that you've sought to live a pure life. That's the kind of body God wants. That's an intelligent, rational act of worship. So first of all, you give your soul in salvation, you give your body, and that's constant. Young people, you don't do that once, you do that all the time. Constantly, constantly, because as I said, the body has a way of crawling off the altar. So you keep doing that. Keep doing that. And remember, what the Lord wants is an undefiled, pure, and holy sacrifice. That is a reasonable, 
service of worship because that's the standard God has set. And I know there are many of us, and, and all of us from time to time, offer ourselves in service. And what we're given God is the lame and the blind and the halt and the maimed and the defiled. And God doesn't want that. God doesn't want that. You're disqualified. You become what Paul called a castaway. Can't use that. You become what Paul wrote to Timothy about honorable and dishonorable vessels. Vivid language. You become a dishonorable vessel. Something that's used to take out the garbage that's defiled and dirty and ugly and unclean. So what God wants is the purity of life. And then you offer that to God and he can use it in his service. One other thing, a third thought. Not only the soul and the body to be given to God, but the mind. The mind. Um, look at verse 2. And do not be conformed to this age. This age. But be transformed, here's the key, by the renewing of your what? Your mind. By the renewing of your mind. Now, follow my thought, will you? Because this is the key to everything. The soul, the soul here we see as that part of us which longs for God and good and right and truth and purity and virtue. Okay? The body is the place where sin still resides. So you have a redeemed soul in conflict with an unredeemed body. Do you know where the conflict takes place? That conflict takes place where? In the mind. The mind then must be given to God as well. And if you can perceive it like that, and again, they're not hard and fast concepts, but merely little hooks to hang our, our thoughts on. The mind has to be given to God because the mind is where that battle takes place. He starts out by saying, do not be conformed to this world. The Germans used to call it the Zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. Don't find yourself conformed to the spirit of the age. What is that? I'll tell you what it is. All the floating mass of thoughts and opinions and maxims and values and speculations and philosophies and hopes and impulses and aims and aspirations that are current at any given time in the ungodly world. Don't become conformed to that. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. The, the verb be not conformed is a very interesting verb. Soon schematizo. We get schematic from it. Schematic. It basically, if I can give a definition that simplifies it, it basically is a word that means to assume an outward expression that doesn't come from inside. Did you get that? It's a kind of masquerade in a way. And what he is saying is don't pretend to be something you're not. It's sort of reverse hypocrisy. The hypocrisy we like to, to define is the guy who is not really godly but pretends to be. But the reverse hypocrisy is the guy who has a redeemed soul but acts like he doesn't. See? That's hypocrisy in reverse. That's, uh, that's being conformed to the world. It is the idea of, uh, of having some kind of outward expression or form that doesn't come from inside. It's flat. There's nothing behind it. It's pretending to belong to the world. It's pretending as if you weren't a redeemed soul. Don't do that, he says. Stop doing that. Stop pretending to be like this evil age. But on the other hand, be metamorphaomai. Be metamorphosed. Be transformed. Be transformed. 
That is to change your outward expression to conform to your inner being. Very, very good concept Paul has here. You want to make sure your outward behavior is conformed to your inward nature. It's a present passive imperative that means to let yourself be being continually transformed. So you want to be transformed, changed, not conformed to the spirit of this age. How do you do that? Verse 2, by the renewing of your what? Your mind. You see, your mind is the key. Your mind is the battleground. How you think is the basic issue in your life. If I can just cover my thoughts and control my thoughts, I can control my life. Right? You are what you think. You are what you think. Whatever the process is in your mind, the behavior in your life. The soul is redeemed. The body is unredeemed. And the mind is the battleground where the redeemed soul and the unredeemed body fight to control your behavior. And so the mind must be renewed. Now, how do you deal with the mind? How do you set your mind up to win the battle? It's very simple. You, you program your mind with divine truth. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Philippians 4.8 a very familiar verse, which I'm sure you perhaps memorize sometime in your life. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, do what? Think on these things. Think on these things. Guard your mind. Fill it with the truth of God. I mentioned a couple of Sundays ago that the human brain is an incredible thing. And what you put in there is going to stay there the rest of your life. Guard your mind. Guard your mind. What is controlling you is your thought process. What is controlling your thought process is what is in your mind. Your flesh will send impulses to your mind. Your redeemed soul will send impulses to your mind. And there's a sense in which whatever's in your mind is going to control the response. That's the battleground. It's the battle in your mind. And if your mind is controlled by the things of God, if you have what I love in, Paul says in the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, have the mind of Christ, if you think like he thought, if you have the spirit dwelling richly in you through the word that dwells richly in you, your mind is controlled. David said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin. The word becomes the control factor. Now what's the result of all this? What is the result? The result comes in verse 2. At the end of the verse, in order that, that's a purpose clause or a result clause. This is what happens if you have a redeemed soul and an unredeemed body that is offered as a living sacrifice and a renewed mind, you will prove, and that means in your living, that doesn't mean to prove by theory, that means to prove by actual test, you will literally Live out what the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. What is the goal of your life? Is the goal of your life to live out the will of God? Well, that's what your redeemed soul says. Your redeemed soul says yes. Your unredeemed flesh might be saying, mm, maybe. But the right answer is your goal in life is to live out the will of God. 
What is the will of God? That you be sanctified, that you be pure. First Thessalonians says this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you don't defraud one another with your bodies, that you don't use your body for dishonor, that you don't follow the impulses of your body into sin and immorality. He talks about it there. That's the will of God, your purity. But how can you do the will of God? Only when your redeemed soul and your unredeemed flesh are brought into harmony through your renewed mind, will you do the will of God? Will you do the will of God? And this is the will of God. Your sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, that you abstain from sexual immorality and possess your body in purity and honor, not in lustful passion like the heathen who don't know God. The only way you can do that, live in sexual purity, live different than the heathen who don't know God, control your body in honor and purity, is through the process of the living sacrifice. Soul, body, mind. Result, purity of life. Doing the will of God. It really comes down to that. And I know that if you love Christ, that's your desire. And I also know that the means of grace are available to every one of us to live in that way if the mind is controlled by the truth of God. Can I make it real practical? Don't let a day go by in your life that you don't spend time in God's Word and in prayer before Him, asking Him to help you to implement in your life the truth of His Word. Let's bow together in prayer.